Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring the unusual topic of phone calls from the dead. With me is Dr. Callum Cooper, a lecturer in psychology at the University of Northampton in the United Kingdom. He delivers classes and conducts research on death and bereavement, positive psychology, human sexual behavior, parapsychology, and research methodology. He is the co-editor of a book called Paracoustics, Sound and the Paranormal. He is also co-author with Alex Tanis of a book titled Conversations with Ghosts, and he is the author of Telephone Calls from the Dead, a book based, incidentally, on an earlier work called Phone Calls from the Dead, written by my distant relative, D. Scott Rogo, along with Raymond Ballas. Once again, this interview is being conducted via the internet, so now I will switch over to the other channel. Welcome, Cal. It's a pleasure to be with you, and, and in particular to be talking about a subject that I know my distant cousin Scott Rogo was very passionate about a, a long time ago, and you have uh, really uh, picked up the mantle from Scott to uh, continue this line of research. I don't know of anyone else uh, besides you who's been pursuing it, but it's it's a very unusual line of research and, and a great challenge for some somebody who is interested in, in approaching a, a bizarre phenomena or phenomenon with uh, the tools of rationality. Yeah, sure. It's great to be speaking to you, Jeff. I mean, thanks so much for having me on. Um, yeah, I, I never intended to kind of get so attached or be so associated um, with that particular area of what Scott was interested in. I mean, I, I fell in love with Scott's work because for a student, when I was an undergraduate student, I was reading his work and it covers such a broad range because not only was he writing for the parapsychology journals, um, but he was a consultant for Fate magazine. So there was very general public stuff there and the books were very general. They were called um, airport paperbacks, I think, because a lot of them you could just slip in your pocket and continue reading. Yeah. But they, they were excellent um, books in terms of how he tried to relay research in peer-reviewed journals and dumb it down so it was, it was understandable for everyone. It was making science easier. Mm -hmm. um, and it just so happened that by fluke, when he and Raymond Bayless were looking into electronic voice phenomena, and they had been for years, more so because Raymond Bayless was the one interested in that, and in a way he was, he was also mentoring Scott, they had people saying, oh, you're, you're trying to record these unusual voices or you're trying to understand what these recordings actually are. Maybe this will interest you. Um, I've heard of a case of people saying they've uh, spoken to the dead on the telephone or another unusual case involving the telephone. It, it took several people to come forward and do that for them to finally say, well, this is unusual. Let's have a look at the parapsychology journals and related literature. Um, nothing really there. So they really dug deep and they had to do that and go to various colleagues and ask, have you heard about it? So some had the odd case on file. There was the odd case in a book here and there. 
just kept doing that until eventually they had 50 cases, a good enough sample, some strong cases, some weak cases evidence-wise, but enough to analyze them and see, you know, what's going on overall. Uh, it is interesting that, uh, I mean, going back as far as, as Thomas Edison back in the uh, <laughs> 19th century, there was an interest in developing uh, mechanical instruments like telephones or telegraphs that could be used to communicate with uh, the spirit world, the other side, the Bardo planes. Yeah. There's a beautiful piece of footage. I, I got it thanks to Dr. Simon Sherwood. He was at Northampton for a long time. He's one of the PhD graduates from Edinburgh, and now he's at the University of Derby, where they have a, a module in parapsychology. And he copied me um, a DVD of, um, it might have been called In Search of the Unknown. It was presented by Leonard Nimoy. Yeah. I think that was right. And there's a whole episode on, on Voices of the Dead. And in that, there's a beautiful clip of Scott talking about this phenomena, uh, along with um, one of the experienced and um, she's being interviewed in the American Society of Psychic Research. And at the end, he then brings up the whole thing with Thomas Edison, just because it, even then it was so popularly known that he'd given this interview to Scientific American and said that he wanted to create such a device and it would have delicate instrumentation and, and so on and so forth. It was quite a lot of information he discussed. But I've always said when I've given presentations on this and um, my presentations have mainly been on, you know, what does psychology understand of these experiences? What can we learn from it? What skepticism can we apply? And, and how do we use skepticism to our advantage? And then what have we got left? Um, I've always talked about starting with the history. What else was going on then? And before Edison, just a few years, um, you had people like Francis Grierson, um, who also went under the name of Jesse Shepard as a, a medium working around Europe. But um, Francis Grierson was from California. And also um, F.R. Melton, who was an engineer living here in Nottingham, where I'm from. Um, they come forward with um, details about designs of using unusual uh, machinery in the seance room to try and record you know, spirit voices. Um, and they aren't the only ones. If you go through the literature of the time, light and many other journals and newspapers that were talking about spiritualism or or on a more serious nature psychical research where people were trying to look for conventional explanations, experiment. Other people were doing it. So I think Thomas Edison trying to jump on the bandwagon with his interview. It never seemed to follow through. I think it's the Thomas Edison Museum in Texas. Um, I think one of their highest requests they get each year, and I've heard this said a number of times, is for, could we please see the blueprint of his telephone to contact the dead? And they have to say, we're sorry that we don't have such things. Mm. Um, even Scott dabbled with that. And he said, you know, maybe there was some, but maybe it was just some media hype and people were making it up. So all we have is just an interview when he thinks maybe, you know, this is a great idea. Maybe I can get onto this and pass what they're doing and commercialize it. Well, I guess maybe a potential antecedent would be the Ouija board. Yes, <laughs> I suppose so. Yeah. I mean, I mean I've met so many people that even collect those things, but we, we know so much about you know, the idiomotor effect. And, and for me, you know, the skeptical hat on, I've never seen anything uh, with the Ouija boards that would impress me that anything is going on beyond psychology and unconscious muscular movement. I mean, you could take it forward to, you know, what do the people know and, and what kind of specific information is coming out here. But it's an interesting kind of play toy in psychology for me. I've always yeah. found it really interesting. The same for glass divination and things like that. It's one of the kind of things that in the very basics of the parapsychology module we teach at the University of Northampton, we tell the students about how that all developed from the seance room to you know, well, what are mediums doing? Or 
spontaneous event when people actually claim to have this interaction with apparitions, what information are they gaining? Where they didn't intend to have that experience, they didn't intend to play with a Ouija board, they didn't intend to play on. It just happened. But these natural day-to-day events, what's going on in those kinds of cases? I have Ouija board stories, but I'll save them <laughs> <laughs> for, for another occasion, perhaps. Uh, okay. Uh, uh, now, re- closely related to the telephone calls from the dead is a wide range of uh, acoustical and uh, uh, instrumental and electronic voice phenomena that often get confused with this specific syndrome that you have uh, been working with, uh, specific to telephone conversations, but related. Sure. I mean... I wrote a, well, I edited a book with Steve Parsons. Steve Parsons spends a lot of time going over to the United States to um, educate people about what is the science behind ghost hunting, you know, and, and why is it so different from what we see on the television? Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's not all about running about in the dark with night vision cameras. He's he's really trying to play what did psychic research do? How did it develop into parapsychology? And where do parapsychologists stand now when it comes to investigating ghost haunting? But Steve's PhD research um, has been on infrasound, so looking at low-frequency sound within the environment that's below 20 hertz, below what we can hear, and um, it's fluctuating. A lot of people believe it was 19 hertz as a standing wave, and I think there was even a film developed about it called 19 hertz. Mm. Um, and it's all based on um, a researcher from Coventry University here in the UK, a guy called Vic Tundy, um, who passed away, I think, over 10 years ago now. And um, Steve followed on his research and looked into it in more depth and realized that when you went to various places that claim haunting-type phenomena, um, in some instances there would be a good level of natural infrasound that is changing throughout the day. And so you had to be in that environment at the right time um, to be, you know, your body to be influenced by the infrasound and have an unusual experience. And the infrasound could cause a sense of presence experience it make hairs stand up on your arms or the back of your neck. It could even, in some cases in corridors, create slight breezes um, through to vibrating your eyeballs within the sockets and creating a spontaneous smearing of vision. Hmm. So that's where people might see this fleeting apparition, a, a gray or white misty figure, they blink again, and it's gone. And so Steve's interest in that led to him saying, oh, come on, let's we should really put this together. There's so many different aspects of people having unusual experiences that relate to auditory perception. And and he'd had an idea for ages to use the term that he'd use a lot, paracoustics, but in a book. And you can even see with the book cover design, it's got a lot of Steve's influence, not mine. <laughs> if you have seen that. Take, mean, if you get the hardback, take the dust cover off. Um, you, mean, anyway, you mean that ghost on the cover wasn't your idea? <laughs> yellow. The fact that it's yellow was my idea. That's about it. <laughs> Stands out on a bookcase. Uh-huh. Oh, what's that yellow book? Yeah, And so we've got that. Um, but um, anyway, within that book, the first half is Steve and I talking about our interests. His background is physics, so he discusses the physics of sound. I discuss the psychology of it, and then both of us have an interest in why people say they experience ghosts. So he's talked about some of his um, kind of interesting research findings. I've talked about mine, I about telephone anomalies. He talks about infrasound. And, and then I did a very long chapter um, Steve put some things on, on the start and end after this, so he's put his name to it as well. But it was looking at the history of EVP, uh, and where it all started, where the hype was, um, it, even some accidental discoveries as well. 
Um, so I, I really am quite proud of that chapter. I really think if anyone's interested mm-hmm. in EVP, it's a go-to chapter. Let's, let's, make a distinction. let's define EVP for our viewers who may not oh. know. Okay, so EVP, electronic voice phenomenon, um, is described as the um, recording of spontaneous sounds, raps, scratches, or voices on a digital or analog recording device which when you were creating the recording, um, you seriously believed such sounds weren't heard. So when they were first done in an experimental setting, um, this was in the 1950s, I would argue, with Raymond Bayliss and um, a gentleman who claimed to be able to astral project at will called Attila Bonzele, and they had converted a studio in California into a soundproof room. And they had a cabinet in there as well, which in some occasions Attila Bonzele would sit in there other times he would sit outside the cabinet with Raymond and they would just sit in silence and leave the reel-to-reel recorder going. Upon playback, they got these strange raps and scratches and sounds. And Raymond eventually published a report on what they were doing in 1959 in the Journal of the American Society for Psychical Research, but not as a paper. It was as a correspondent. So right in the back of the journal, um, you'd have to really be dedicated to research to want to kind of flick the correspondence and look there normally to see with the previous journal, has anyone commented on a study or argued about a book review? That That's what correspondences are for. Mm-hmm. And um, so it was there. And Raymond got quite annoyed in a way because he thought what he was doing was pioneering and no one was really interested. No one responded. And so he was still casually talking about it in his books and uh, mainly publishing about it in the um, newsletter and journal of the Southern Californian Society for Psychical Research, which lasted for about 20 years or so. It it had no uh, kind of length or depth of dedication and research like the the British SPR and the American SPR, and also the the Boston SPR as well. Um, And so, essentially, I've described what they were doing. It's purposeful, purposeful recording of anomalous sounds, scratches, voices, trying to figure out what they are. With the telephone anomalies, they seem to be spontaneous. Even those devices I mentioned, those Mm -hmm. early ones, that's purposeful again. Well, I think it is fair to mention that the the phenomenon of, uh, it's either called electronic voice phenomenon or or instrumental transcommunication, ITC, it's now become a global fad. And I think there are tens of thousands of uh hobbyists who are uh, uh, working, trying to record uh, sounds created uh, paranormally. Sure. There, there were, I think, um, again, this is mentioned in the EVP chapter to keep picking that up. Yeah. Um, David Ellis, you're probably familiar with David Ellis. It was a very brief study in a way. He was um, a student recipient, a recipient of the Parrot Warwick Scholarship. Um, which is offered all the way through to postdoctoral researchers where they can do an independent study on a parapsychological topic. Um, and this is released through the University of Cambridge. And at the moment, um, my ex-supervisor, Professor Chris Rowe, holds that position. So I think he's on his fourth year now of research. And he's been doing a, a variety of things, mainly looking at dream, um, dream pre um, but David Ellis had this in the 1970s as a student. So he was given two years' worth of funding to find out why people like Frederick Jurgensen and uh, Dr. Constantine Raudover um, have produced books and um, even recordings to the public about these strange recordings. 
So his job was to go out and find out what was going on. Um, David's background, I think, I could be completely wrong. I, I think it was in journalism or something like that. I can't remember what his first degree was in. Parapsychology had just been an interest, really. So he had to do a lot of reading up on what other people were doing and finding out, well, you know, is it just pure psychology or is there some physics involved or is this something else going on? Uh, and not to ruin his book, or the study, his book was called The Mediumship of the Tape Recorder. He ultimately thought that there was a lot of group suggestion going on mm-hmm. upon playback. And, and that's why people thought they were, you know, you'd hear, did you hear David? And I think I heard the name David. And then everyone else would start to say, yeah, I, I think I heard that too. Um, so separating people, making fake EVPs, and then what you think to be a genuine one, can people distinguish one from the other? The person who's brought everything up to date is um, a colleague of um, Steve Parsons as well, um, Anne Winsper. She's at the University of Central Lancashire here in the UK, and her PhD, which is coming towards an end, she's pure, it's called The Psychology of EVP. I believe that's her full thesis title. Mm. And um, again, she's looked at, um, I think she's previously looked at personality types and schizotypy and other things like that. And ultimately, again, it's come back to David's conclusions in a way that for a lot of EVPs, it seems that sometimes we are really digging. Is this effect we call pareidolia, where um, visually, particularly, we will try and fill in the gaps. You look at a cloud and you think that looks like a bunny rabbit or a race car. Well, sure, it, it might do, but ultimately, it's a cloud. You might see it in the brickwork, a face in the brickwork or in the woodwork. Um, we can do the same auditory as well, where you're not quite hearing something right, but your brain is still trying to figure out the sequence. And fill in the gaps. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, we've got this this suggestion that an EVP is a recording of someone from the dead, and you're hearing all these kinds of mixed up static, and, and you're trying to pick out something because it's the intent. You're trying to follow the intention of that. That's why I find the spontaneous phenomena way more interesting because it interrupts the daily balance of you going about your daily tasks. And sometimes it's not until after the experience you realise that something unusual happened. Mm-hmm. And that's what I find so interesting. Well, when we talk about phone calls from the dead, I, I think it might be useful to share with our, our viewers a, an extreme example, because sometimes there are two-way conversations that go on for a long time. Yeah, absolutely. So the, after my analysis, Rogan Bayless found four different types. When I reanalyzed them, I, I looked at another pool of 50 cases. Um, I found that potentially, if we want to put labels, characteristics, and I must emphasize, just because we've got types, we've labeled them, it doesn't mean to say that they are, are naturally anonymous, uh, anomalous. There mm-hmm. are conventional explanations out there, but the way they act, their phenomenology, the way they're perceived, that they have a certain way in which they're experienced. And so the first one is simple calls. So they're very brief. You might be very much aware that someone has, has died and you're thinking about them. Ring, ring. The telephone uh, gets picked up and you hear their voice or they're calling your name out. And the, the voice is very recognizable. But there might be some unusual features as well. You're hearing static or their voice sounds very distant and you don't hear the click of the receiver. But that's it. You get no conversation. Type two, they're called prolonged calls. Um, uh, I'll make up a story. So um, ring, ring, Mary calls you on the phone. Hello, Mary. And you speak to her for half an hour and she's talking about projects you've got going on and a book you're writing together, let's say. And she says, oh, you finish off. You're doing a really good job. I, I think you need to take it forward. You know what to do. And then there might be suggestions of Mary going away and it's all sort of like a normal holiday or something. Phone goes down. Lovely conversation. 
and then ring ring there's a ring at the door you go to answer and it's your friend sam sam looks clearly upset what's what's wrong sam oh did you hear about mary oh, i've just been to mary you can't have done mary died in a car accident yesterday that's why i came to speak with you and that's where the realization comes in but you've had a prolonged telephone conversation you might check with the telephone company and there's no record of that call taking place um pipe three they're called answer calls that would be where you make the call and two things could happen either someone that you don't know is dead still answers the call and you have that prolonged conversation or someone who was verified to be elsewhere at the time still answers say their home telephone and has that conversation with you it's not until you meet up and relay um, about that conversation that you realize that it couldn't have happened. That happened with Scott Rogan and Raymond Bayless a few times for them to then ask other people to realize. So Raymond had rung Scott's apartment when he had a lodger there as well. And the lodger answered and he said, oh, Scott's gone away for a few days. And he said, oh, I really need to speak to him. Do you leave this message? Say Raymond Bayless has called for him. And Raymond knew this lodger as well. He met him a few times. He said, no problem, Raymond. I'll, I'll tell him as soon as he gets in. A week or so goes by and Raymond gets really annoyed and he rings back and Scott answers. And he said, well, why didn't you ring me back? I told, I told your lodger to get you to call me back straight away. And Scott says, what are you talking about? He, he's gone traveling for a month. No one has been in the flat. I just went away for two days. So someone was in the flat or answering that landline telephone with the voice characteristics, the personality of the lodger that Raymond had met. And there's the confusion in, in those two, Raymond and Scott speaking again. Type four, I call the mixed call. So that could be a mixed group type one and two. You know someone to be dead, and yet you have repeated calls from them and prolonged conversations. Or you don't know someone to be dead, and yet the, the call is very brief and, and really unusual. So it mixes up the two characteristics. And then type five, um, intention calls, that's where you intend to make a telephone call, but at the last minute you change your mind. And yet for the person you wanted to call, they still answer the call. Uh, and again, it's not until you speak to them later that you realize what happened. So I've given so many talks now on this topic and, and reread my book so many times over. It needs revising that I've remembered Scott's own example, which I think is one of the best. So it was, it was 10 o'clock on a bright Thursday morning. And I was thinking about calling a friend of mine at the UCLA Neuropsychiatric, Neuropsychiatric Institute. Um, but when I thought about making the call, I never actually did. I think he went on to mark some papers or something like that. However, at four o'clock that afternoon, I got the shock of my life when a call came in to me from the Neuropsychiatric Institute at UCLA. Um, from the research assistant of the very psychologist I wanted to speak to. They said that they were answering my message. When I asked what in blazers they were talking about, he said that at 10 o'clock that morning, a call had come into them from me, and the caller had left my name and my number and asked that the call be returned. So that's when Scott realized that there we have that interesting decision moment. Do you or don't you? And yet the version of you that says no goes on to do something else. And it's like it suggests there's a fleeting moment of the you that said yes and someone gets to experience it. Mm -hmm. Maybe you could relate that to cases of apparitions of living people um, where people have this interaction with an apparition of a living person. And again, it's not until those two people meet up later on that they realize that this previous meeting couldn't have happened. And there we've got the suggestion of apparitions of living people. Just a fleeting experience. You would never actually know unless you do like in Ghostbusters when 
Egon's going around the hotel and he actually pokes one of the guests. <laughs> I mean, people can relate to that in public. When you go to the supermarket and you later see a friend, you say, oh, I saw you at the supermarket today. They say, no. Like, no, no, it's, you were wearing your favorite jumper, you know, a haircut was distinct, you know, scar on the face, whatever. And they say, well, I wasn't there. Well, you must have a twin. It always ends up in that kind of argument. And it's very common for people to say that. But what's actually going on there? You will never know. You will never know. Yeah. Well, as a psychologist and as a person who's been schooled, uh, I'm sure, in skeptical analyses of, of, of these kinds of cases, I would think one of the very first concerns you would uh, have is, is the question of the reliability of memory in these mm. cases. Absolutely. I mean, um, I even spent a lot of time, uh, bless him, speaking to John Randall before he passed away. He passed away very suddenly. Um, but I've become a good friend of his, and he, he told me about time with um, J.B. Ryan and spent most of his time as a, a teacher in biology here in the UK in Warwickshire. Um, he'd written the, the book um, Parapsychology of New Science of Life and he did another book on psychokinesis. One of the basic things he told me was um, even before looking at false memory was just remember with these telephone calls which are certainly very interesting when you need researching is that people can be naturally very cruel. Don't ever forget that. And, you know, as much as we want to be nice to each other, some of these cases could just be outright fraud when someone is grieving and maybe they've upset someone down the line and they just think this is a perfect opportunity to prank. Um, so that could always happen. You need to follow them up as far as you possibly mm-hmm. can. Or, or, uh, other ones could be just um, just a, a complete fluke in, in the fact that you know a parent loses a child. How many people around the world are called mum and dad? You know, is, and Someone gets a call, a child tries to call home to their parents, um, they accidentally get a digit wrong and they end up calling someone who so happens to have lost their child and they realise this person starts getting very emotional maybe and they realise, oh, that's not my mum or dad. They put the phone down and there's no explanation or apology of, sorry, I've got the wrong number. The parent goes away satisfied in some ways thinking, well, I've just had a very transpersonal experience. You know, I've just spoken to my deceased child on the telephone, which is suggesting to me they're living on. We've got this perfect psychological kind of misunderstanding of the events, really. And and we can see how it's married up. False memory, though, absolutely right. There was even um, a guy called Robert Baker who'd done a book called Hidden Voices, I think it was. And he talked about, I think he called it intentional amnesia, whereas someone is clearly... Um, in a state of grief and they're at home alone and they're thinking of this person and, and maybe it's a, a call company trying to sell you products, double glazing and you're so distraught he believed that sometimes it's a natural call but the perfect and in their head they're transforming the sales telephone call or something like that into a message from a deceased loved one and hard to verify again because it's so subjective it's just that one person saying they did this struggle for conventional explanations in that case. Um, but again, you know, it could be all kinds of jargon, jumbled up telephone calls where there is an electrical fault and people are trying to draw out um, a need-serving thing, this communication with the dead, and it's just led to false memories and exaggeration of that story over time as well. I always like relaying to the students, um, you know, look at how memories work. You know, we could all here relay the, the story of Little Red Riding Hood. And we could stand here and, and tell it off by heart. 
But I bet we've all got a slightly different version. Um, now, I have personally uh, experienced what I regard as a phone call from the dead. Uh, can I share okay. that with you? Yeah. Oh. Please, please do. <laughs> okay. All right. This occurred, um, well, maybe about 10 years ago. And uh, the deceased person had been dead now for some time. Uh, I'm talking about Elizabeth Targ, who was a, a psychical researcher, as a matter of fact, a, a sure. psychiatrist, a medical doctor who tragically died at, um, in her 40s of a geoblastoma uh, brain tumor. And after her death, I learned from a number of people that they were experiencing uh, uh, ostensible communications from her, sometimes through mediums, sometimes through spontaneous events that suggested telekinesis. Uh, even her father, Russell Targ, a well-known parapsychologist, reported uh, having received a communication uh, a couple of communications, in fact, from his daughter through mediums. And one of them really convinced him that, that she was alive because it was that, that her consciousness was alive, I should say, because it, she recounted through the medium an incident that only he would have known about, uh, when she was a, a, a young child, a toddler, maybe six years old or so. They had put a red dress on her and she tore the dress off. She didn't want to wear that dress and he remembered it vividly and and you know she recounted that experience through the medium and that convinced him that this was an authentic communication uh, in fact i've interviewed i have i have him testifying to that on videotape so in this instance um after having had many conversations of this sort uh, i had a dream and uh, uh, it was in the middle of the night and she appeared to me in a dream and I, and it felt real. It was like a lucid dream. And I said to her, Elizabeth, how wonderful to see you. And I, I've heard so many great things about your communications, in particular, the physical ones. Mm -hmm. At that moment, I was awakened from the dream by the phone ringing. I had a phone right next to my bed. It was like three in the morning. I picked up the phone and there was white noise on the phone. Just white noise this is the only time I've ever picked up the phone like that and had white noise at the other end. No words or anything, but I took it since it happened at the very instant in my dream, I was talking about physical manifestations. So it, it strikes me that in combination with the dream, it, it makes sense to think of this as a potential phone call from the dead. Yeah, that's it relates so well to um, and it's, it's strange, the dream incidents as well. Um, when I was doing my PhD and I was working with the bereaved, um, I got a, a number of participants who were medical doctors. They were psychologists. They were psychiatric nurses. Um, so these were all very well educated people that had, had a, you know, spent their careers interacting with people and learning about their day to day experiences and health and psychology and things like that. And yet these people had also been through. Um, bereavements themselves and I was asking about their professions against their experience of bereavement and experiences they may have had afterwards as well. and it was surprising the amount of people that said not only had they like you said had this interaction with the person in their dream um, but had had it where the scenario wasn't face to face they said that in the dream there was a white staircase and they went up it and they just constantly heard ringing 
and they followed this white cord all the way to the top. They opened the door, and in the room, which was a white room as well, was a white pedestal, and on top of the white pedestal was a white telephone, and they picked it up and had a conversation. And I've always thought, well, what's going on there? Why would the dream construct a, a telephone? Would it be that but you... Uh, you know, a distant friend or a relative that lives at a distance is the voice that's more recognizable than face to face. And that's what you need as a last goodbye. But a lot of them as well, like you say, also got interrupted by ringing telephones that brought them back to the waking state. And their mobile phone was behaving unusually with a missed call, but it wasn't even saying a missed call. It's just kind of lit up and it has been ringing. So it's not the alarm either going off, but something has been going on because the phone is lit up and they heard the, the sound of their ringtone. Um, or even strange text messages with words that were familiar to the deceased, but there's no number, there's no sender information, there's no date. I mean, text messages usually display those basic bits of information. It was just a message that came through and it's just a message. Um, nowadays, though, there are so many different apps and also methods on the internet where you can send anonymous text messages. But that sends us right back to John Randall's first construction. Do you have any enemies out there? Um, you know, is this someone being cruel? Or, or well, what else is going on? What do we know about the technology that caused this fault? Had that person ever texted you before with such words? There's so many questions you have to ask mm-hmm. and, and really rake through to find out, well, once we've done that, are we happy? What's left? How much wheat can we separate from the chaff? Well, you talked earlier about, about the instance where somebody intends to make a phone call. They don't, but then later on, they learn that somebody got a message that they called. Sure. So that, that suggests to me that in some instances, recordings are left uh, of these experiences. That uh, if a recording exists, that would, I should think, make it a lot easier for a researcher to try and figure out what really happened. In some rare ones, yes. I got sent, um, even in this day and age, I got sent a cassette tape of all things. Would you believe it? A cassette tape. <laughs> it was um, from uh, someone's voicemail. Is their answer, um, uh, answer phone. And they made a copy. It was their daughter who died of a, a brain hemorrhage. And they sent me all the information around the circumstances, and she'd been dead for some time. And they just got, um, they got home, and the answer phone was flashing. So they pressed to hear the message back. And apparently the mother had been very much open to the idea of her surviving in some form beyond death, some traces of her memory, personality, consciousness. Um, and the father was extremely skeptical of the idea, and he was very withdrawn following her death. And they'd split up as well. Um, but when she got this message, she called her ex-husband over to ask, if you've got to hear this, presses the um, playback button, and I've got what they got. And it was simply... Uh, some statics to start with and they've played it on loop as well so i've got it as this constant uh, you hear the static and then hi dad hi dad hi dad and um i'd never heard her voice before but i'd, I'd seen her pictures and information about it, and they said that was her voice without a doubt um again you know what's happened there i've sent text messages before to people that have taken two years to get to that person's mm-hmm. phone so i've ended up with a very strange text message response saying You've just asked me if I want to go to the cinema tonight, but the film you've just mentioned has been out on DVD for the last year and a half. What are you talking about? And I said, I've got no memory of sending that. You know, that, that was, that must have been ages ago when we were, you know, spending a lot of time with each other and, and doing cinema trips. So sometimes things like cyberspace, 
even um, a voicemail message, which that could have been an old voicemail message when she was alive. I've seen that with emails as well, where people have picked up an email following the death of the person. And the receiver has assumed that that has actually been sent after the death, not that it's just been lingering in that kind of intermittent period. Um, but sure, if we've got a recording, there's, there's more to kind of look at. The ITC journals explored that idea, especially with recordings of Dr. Constantine Rauder's voice following, in, following his death. Yes. A lot of people yes. believe they got EVPs of him. People like uh, Mark Macy believed he had constant telephone calls from him, and of which there are many, many recordings. Um, and then there were even recordings of those telephone calls in France and Germany. But they've been subject to a lot of skepticism, particularly from myself and then people that wanted to actually analyze them for their acoustical properties. We've got recordings of his voice from when he was alive. So what do these recordings from him, allegedly from this state beyond the grave, this disembodied state, do they match up? The answer is they don't. They don't match. But that then sends us to another brick wall. They don't match because um, either A, it's someone faking it, and so the voice properties don't match, or B, that was a biological voice box producing the sounds and being recorded. We're suggesting in this state that it's a disembodied consciousness, personality, manipulating the electrical system to create a representation of the person's voice. So why would they match? Mm-hmm. So we're stuck at that philosophical conundrum. More likely the fraud aspect, that's what we'd sooner turn to. But at the same time, that's a, a tricky argument to work your way out of as well. Do you, have you taken a position yourself with regard to the strength of the overall evidence for survival? I sit on the Survival Research Committee for the Society for Psychical Research. I'm on their council as well. I had to admit that, you know, I got into parapsychology because I was interested in ghosts and hauntings. Not necessarily because they might suggest life after death, but also why. I love a good ghost story, especially now at Christmas time. I've got a coal fire over here and I stick logs on it and I like it. And turn down the lights, get out the Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens, give it a read through again. I love it. But over time, seeing more and more Monday research reports, there have been some really interesting curveballs in our history that suggest that, well, that doesn't meet conventional scientific paradigms. It's just left the case with a big question mark on it. It hasn't said, well, there's definite proof of survival. It doesn't work like that, but it's certainly leaning towards that suggestion beyond anything else in those cases. So for someone interested in survival research, I'm interested in what those have to say. Monday stuff, we're doing a lot of neuroscience research in parapsychology at the moment. But the Arthur Findlay College, Stanford Hall, where people go to train to be certified mediums, we decided to take the opportunity to finally work with them and allow the scientists in. And we have our own research lab there where we're doing purely neuroscientific studies to look at uh, brainwave activity. And if these people truly believe they're getting in contact with the dead, what actually is changing in the brainwaves and when they're actually doing that, when they believe they're in direct communication. So we need to embrace that kind of link to neuroscience, take things further. There's a great book by Michael Suddeth. Um, I think it's called uh, A Philosophical Critique of the Evidence yeah. of Post-Mortem Survival. It came out a couple of years ago, and I think it's a really good and fair skeptical overview of what is the current state of the evidence. If people are interested in the other side of the argument, there's two books to read one and then read the other. It doesn't matter which you read first. There's one called A Myth of the, or The Myth of the Afterlife, which is a big anthology, and it goes hand in hand with Beyond Physicalism. They're very heavy books to go into because they're big anthologies, but they both are both reaching a brick wall, I think, 
mm-hmm. in terms of they complement each other really well, but you've got two sets of research in some ways, not quite seeing eye to eye, but a lot of what they do really complements each other. Um, so yeah, I think that's where we are. We're still at a brick wall, but some fantastic stuff there, a whole mountain of history that we're stuck on. So we have mm-hmm. to keep going. Well, you, you began talking about earlier the, um, problem of distinguishing evidence for survival from evidence in favor of uh, what Steve Browdy, the philosopher, would call living agent psi. And mm-hmm. I, I, even in that experience I had that my, with the dream of Elizabeth Targ, it's entirely possible that I produced the whole thing, uh, including the phone ringing through psychokinesis myself. I might have been the source of it all. So, we get a lot of um, students through through the course, the third year course in parapsychology. So these are psychology students. And for the first term, they do a lot on spontaneous experiences. So there's a lot suggesting survival. They look at apparitional experiences and mediumship. And just recently, we managed to get in a whole lecture on reincarnation, which we'd not done before. And I just re-highlighted to them, look, even though these may suggest survival of death, Go back to everything we said about ESP and PK in the natural world and how they could actually explain the experience. And even the founders of it, going back to early psychical research, looking at the books, um, two-volume edition, Phantasms of the Living, Myers, Human Personality and its Survival of Bodily Death. You've got these fantastic titles, but a lot of their belief systems were leaning heavily towards that once you're dead, that's it. These experiences can be explained by ESP and psychokinesis and that they were just starting to actually explore what these phenomena actually were and how they potentially worked. There are a few researchers within that, though, that, of course, they they were strongly in favor of the idea of survival. Um, But a lot of the early ideas for apparitions were actually suggesting that actually it's ESP. Um, And again, that, that idea is just carried forward to modern day and we still have lurking this whole idea of super psi. And it's a tricky one to actually weigh up. And that's why designing lab studies as survival is so hard. How can you control or more so eliminate psi getting into the lab if you're actually trying to test this for survival? How can you actually categorically say or be very firm in saying, look, what we have left suggests survival? There's no way that ESP could leak through. Really tricky to do that. And that's why, you know, more so the best things when it comes to survival evidence are really good cases from the field, and many of them. We've not just got an anecdote. We've got many of them, so we've got data to work with. But certainly there have been some really interesting lab studies, and what we're doing with neuroscience is really taking that forward. Well, I'm very impressed that you can offer a three-year program in parapsychology to college students in the UK. I don't believe we have anything comparable right now in the United States. It, it kind of varies. I mean, certainly in the first year, um, this is just a standard psychology degree, but in the first year, there's nothing stopping them exploring parapsychology um, in their early research method classes. Certainly a lot of parapsychologists in our university, we have about eight, including myself, when they teach research methods, they'll get examples of parapsychology and to make it easy to understand the context of some forms of research. Second year, they can do an independent project, um, but by third year, they can do a whole module and an entire dissertation on it as well. And it's not just those. There must be a dozen universities in the UK that have a taught course in it. And then perhaps even a, another dozen beyond that, where there are parapsychologists there that have it to take on research degrees, so MPhils and PhDs. 
Well, uh, we have a lot of catching up to do uh, in in this country. I'm hopeful that uh, YouTube channels like New Thinking Aloud will uh, help encourage more academic programs here. Uh, Cal, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I look forward to many future conversations. Uh, thank you so much for being with me. Thank you, Jeff. Hopefully next time we talk, there'll be less ghosts in the machine. But thank you so much for being patient with me. It's been great speaking to you. And Merry Christmas as well. Okay, have a good break. Happy holidays. And uh, I look forward to speaking to you again. You too, Jeff. Take care.